Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Remy Hamill. I'm a dermatology resident at Washington University in St. Louis. It's my pleasure to be speaking today to Dr. Emilio Slalas about his recent JAD article titled, The Dermatoscopic Inverse Approach Significantly Improves the Accuracy of Human Readers for Lentigo Maligna Diagnosis. Dr. Emilio Slalas is a dermatologist, venereologist, and associate professor of dermatology at the Medical School of Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece. He's introduced and documented innovative diagnostic methods in dermatoscopy for the identification of melanoma, basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma and inflammatory dermatoses. He's authored over 300 peer-reviewed papers and is the editor for several dermoscopy textbooks. He's also the general secretary for the International Dermoscopy Society. Dr. Lalas, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Remy, very much. It's my great pleasure. The timing of our discussion is perfect for me because last week I biopsied an irregularly pigmented lesion that had gray dots and structureless areas under dermoscopy and was concerning for lentigo maligna. The pathology report just came back as pigmented actinic keratosis. I was wondering if you could start by reviewing some of the key dermoscopic features of pigmented actinic keratosis, lentigo, seborrheic keratosis, and lentigo maligna on the face. Yeah, sure. First of all, Remy, don't worry at all. It happens every day. <laughs> it's a tough differential diagnosis. That's, that's clear cut. So, yes, theoretically, the main criteria of lentigo maligna are, is pigmentation, which appears precisely at the outline of the hair follicle, initially as small dots of gray color, which then coalesce to form semicircles and later on circles and later on rhomboids. And as the tumor evolves, then the uh, follicular openings are eventually covered by pigment and then classic melanoma criteria appear. This is the sequence, let's say. In solar lentigo and seborrheic keratosis, the pattern is usually either structureless or a pattern of lines, which might be reticular or parallel. So a regular network on the face uh, is a clue for uh, solar lentigo. And in actinic keratosis, the main features dermatoscopically are quite evident and dilated follicular openings, not always dilated, but sometimes they are a little bit dilated, sometimes filled with keratin plugs, as we know, superficial scaling, obviously, and gray pigmentation in between the follicular openings, but not inside the follicular openings. These are the theoretical, typical patterns of the three tumors. Thank you. One thing I noticed going through your article and the other articles that you cited was how much overlap there is between these macular pigmented lesions on the face. What makes distinguishing between these so challenging? For example, maybe regression and LPLK or other features that overlap between both dermoscopically and pathologically. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there is a clear overlap, a significant overlap, which is also explained by the fact that there is a pathologic overlap also, histopathologic overlap among these tumors. And definitely when regression is present, then the overlap becomes <laughs> impossible to solve. An additional problem which complicates even further the situation is the fact that the 
the bad one of the differential diagnosis, so the melanoma, the Lendigo maligna melanoma subtype. Unfortunately, the criteria that I described previously become evident, prominent, prevalent to our eye after a certain stage of evolution. So at the very initial stage, unfortunately, these features are so subtle that you are not sure if you see them or not. So when you just see a couple of gray dots, and then obviously this is not a predominant feature that makes you confident about your diagnosis. And that's why historically, if you go through all the, the studies in the past on lentigo maligna, usually the diameter of the tumor was very large because most of the lentigo malignas we diagnose in our routine life used to be large in diameter. Fortunately, not invasive, but large in diameter. Can you walk us how you came up with what the inverse approach that you used in the study was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We came up with the inverse approach precisely because we experienced so many problems in clinical practice and in all the previous studies that we performed, because we performed quite a lot of previous studies on Letaigo Maligna, not only our group, but also other friends and colleagues all over the world. And we always had to face the same problem, that in order to increase sensitivity for melanoma diagnosis, in order to be able to catch the majority of melanomas, we had to demolish, to destroy the specificity. The only way was if you biopsied everything with just a little bit of suspicion for melanoma. Otherwise, the sensitivity was very, very low and practically unacceptable because the sensitivity, when we are speaking about melanoma, a sensitivity which is lower than 80% is not acceptable. So this was always the problem. And we understood that since the real problem is that melanoma criteria become evident at a late phase, we should stop searching for them. We should not trust them in for early melanoma because they will not be present. And that's how we came up with the idea of inversing the approach. Instead of looking for melanoma criteria, let's see what is going to happen if we look for the non-melanoma criteria and trust the non-melanoma criteria. And in the absence of non-melanoma criteria, then automatically we consider the lesion as suspicious for melanoma. This was the idea a few years ago. We did publish the initial concept two, three years ago, but now we tested it in a big number of readers, 80 readers, and the result was uh, very promising, showing that indeed it improved significantly, really significantly, especially the sensitivity for melanoma. And that's a perfect segue into the study. You had that group of about 80 subjects, mostly board-certified dermatologists and some dermatology residents, and they underwent three-day training on a set of biopsy-confirmed clinical and dermoscopic lesions. And as you mentioned, the sensitivity in detecting the lenticle maligna after the training on pattern analysis increased to 57, and then after the inverse approach increased to 84%. And as you mentioned, without any loss in the specificity. So that was fantastic. Uh, interestingly, almost half of the subjects were outperformed by the convolutional neural network that you tested them against. I, I guess framing another way, half of them outperformed the neural network. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You've been involved extensively both on training humans and training machines in this aspect of melanoma detection. Are you aware of any data looking at the combination of human and artificial intelligence for melanoma detection? We use it a little bit in our clinic in the mole mapping where we have it take the picture of the 
different dates and point out growing or changing lesions. How do you incorporate that into your own clinic? How do you foresee using that in the future? Great point. Well, I wouldn't say that we incorporate it already in the real clinical setting, but yes, there are data showing that this collaboration might be the future or part of the future. First of all, as you said, let's look the glass half full and not half empty. So half of the readers outperformed the network, which is a great result for an experimental setting because you know that now in several studies, the convolutional networks perform better than us usually, especially for melanoma, but for ski cancer in general. Of course, we have to clarify that the experimental setting is a different issue from the clinical setting. Of course, we as clinicians perform much better in our clinical practice because we don't only interpret images, but we treat human beings and we uh, uh, use several kinds of information in order to reach our goal, which is the correct diagnosis. So we perform much better in the real life. This is something we always have to remember and mention. But then the fact that, as you said, in this experiment that we did with the 80 readers, at the beginning, AI outperformed almost all of them. And in the end, with the inverse approach, more than 50% outperformed AI. In fact, AI in this study was used mainly as a high reference point. And the fact that most of the readers outperformed it just confirmed that the increase of the diagnostic accuracy was significant and reached a very high level. Now, concerning the collaboration, of course, we have data. There is also a very important study that we published a few months ago in Nature Medicine precisely on the collaboration of humans and AI and how this significantly performs better than human alone or AI alone. So this is, for the moment, let's say, the golden combination in terms of diagnostic accuracy. Again, of course, we are speaking about experimental settings. It remains to be wisely thought and decided in which way uh, it should be incorporated in our daily practice in order to really benefit the patients because our goal is always to perform as good as we can for the good of our patients. This is the number one and everything else comes after it. Uh, absolutely. I noticed that the inverse approach was beneficial both for the inexperienced and the well-trained clinicians. It benefited everybody. Can you speak a little bit about how you integrate dermoscopy into your clinical examinations and your teaching in a busy clinic where, say, somebody comes in with many pigmented lesions? How are you screening? How do you decide which to look at? How do you educate? How does that workflow of, of bringing both education and dermoscopy, but also the clinical applicability of dermoscopy in your own clinic? Any tips or tricks for those listening? Good point. Well, in terms of clinical application of dermoscopy, there is no problem. I mean, this is, in my view, the great power of dermoscopy. It's not so much that it's accurate or not, which is accurate, but this is not the most important. There are also other diagnostic techniques that might be even more accurate, like confocal microscopy or whatever. The real power is precisely the fact that it can be, it is very fast and you can scan hundreds of lesions very, very quickly. So in terms of clinical application, there is no problem. It's a small tool. We use it always. We examine every single 
spot with the dermatoscope and every kind of eruption also with the dermatoscope because today we have also data and improving knowledge for dermoscopy of inflammatory or infectious diseases, not only tumors. So it's not a problem to apply it. It does not take a lot of time. In fact, it has also been calculated that the additional time, I mean, the time that you spend more just because of the dermatoscopic examination is an, uh, in average three or four minutes additional, which is not a disaster. It's feasible. In terms of teaching, uh, this is much more tough because teaching, as you know, requires time because it's not only the fact that I will teach something to somebody else. It has to be, in order to be absorbed, we need to discuss, we need to have time, we need to explain, to repeat. So, of course, teaching cannot be completed in the setting of a busy clinic. It has to be completed also with additional procedures. But, of course, it is a part of training. I mean, watching this uh, routine flow of what we do every day of examining numerous lesions and the one after the other, the patients, is a part of teaching as much as we can on site on that moment. We explain what is possible to be explained, but teaching requires much more than this. I'm sure you know it very well. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I thought really interesting from one of your other papers was you mentioned the 10 second rule. And as I'm learning the different patterns, I'm realizing if I can't place it clearly into one of the patterns within a very brief period, as you mentioned, then it's absolutely relevant and appropriate to biopsy that lesion to put it in a, a category to get that additional information. And that helped a lot as far as I don't have to look at it for five minutes or I shouldn't need to. I fully agree. This was a very wise rule. I mean, it was first, I think, said by J.P. Ardenziano. It was a very very wise phrase, 10 seconds, and in fact, maybe less than 10 seconds. So if you don't have the information you require in order to have a confident evaluation of the lesion, then spending more time usually will not solve your problem. That's true in the majority, of course, of lesions. There are always exceptions. There are always times in which there is a small detail in a corner, which finally will be important. But this is an exception. The rule is the one you said. Usually, the information arrives immediately. If not, then you have to accept that you have to apply other strategies. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit before about the inverse method performing in real-world clinical scenarios. In the study, you'd looked at a select group of the most common macular pigmented lesions on the face. How do you think it would perform or how has your experience been using the inverse method in real clinical scenarios where there's other types of lesions on the face, LPLK, nevi, maybe that could be confused with the additional lesions you mentioned. Again, excellent point, Remy, your excellent point. As you said, in the real life, nobody tells you that these are the three possible differential diagnoses. In real life, there are uncountable possibilities. So you're right, in real life, it is much more tricky in real life. You gave a perfect example, LPLK, lichen planus lichenatosis, which is solar lendigo in regression, is anyhow a big confounder. So the inverse approach will fail usually to recognize LPLK because it will assess it, it will evaluate it as suspicious. So the problem of LPLK is definitely not solved by the inverse approach. But in any case, 
in lesions with extensive regression, I don't think that we should trust clinical and dermatoscopic morphology. We should try to acquire at least a small sample for histopathologic examination, which, by the way, will not be easy again in case of extensive regression. But we should not trust dermoscopy if regression is in an advanced stage. Other than this, however, I have to say that in my experience, the inverse approach in real life works very well, as well as it works in the studies. Really, in the last years that we invented and then applied it, and that's how we evaluate lesions now, the mean diameter of lentigo malignans in our database is significantly smaller. Eventually, after so many years, we are able, we have examples to show of small lentigo malignans in diameter, because in the past, our examples were usually always large diameter tumors. Today, we can give examples of lentigo malignas, you know, of three, four, five millimeters. And, that, and these are obviously featureless. They don't display melanoma criteria. They can only be recognized by the absence of non-melanoma features, which is the logic of the inverse approach. And that brings up another question that you raised in the article. Outside of the scope of the article, the very interesting one nonetheless is having to do with the early detection and diagnosis of lentico maligna fitting into this pattern of increased detection of melanoma, but without the increased death noted. I think it was the, the Welsh et al. article from 2010 where new diagnoses have steadily increased but the deaths have remained relatively constant. Not an easy question to answer. No. Any thoughts about how all of this might fit or interplay or studies that you might be working on or have heard about to try and answer this type of question? That's a very nice discussion. Interesting, very much. Of course, there is no answer because, first of all, it's not purely scientific. It's also somehow philosophic discussion. But it's a really difficult point. It's not only for melanoma, you know, it's for cancers in general. Uh, all these very, very early cancers that we are more and more able to recognize because of our better and better diagnostic tools and our better and better knowledge. Eventually, all these cancers with many of them, we know that they don't have a very important malignant potential really need to be treated, really would eventually cause any kind of problem to the patient. And lentigo maligna is a great example because we know very well that it's a very slow-growing melanoma. Sometimes it takes decades to invade the dermis. We also know that it usually develops in elderly individuals. So these two combined means that many lentigo malignas eventually would not cause any kind of problem even if they remained undiagnosed and untreated. On the other hand, until the moment that we will be able somehow to predict which tumor has a potential to behave more aggressively and which tumor does not, because for the moment we don't have any kind of marker, not a clinical, not a morphologic, not a biomarker, nothing that can tell us which tumor at the beginning has a potential to be aggressive. Until that moment, which is the best that we can do. The best that we can do is to detect melanoma as early as possible. And if we detect it when it's very small, then also the treatment is not a treatment that will cause morbidity. It will be a small surgery 
easy to apply without, you know, significant consequences. Therefore, in the end, I would say that trying to recognize as many melanomas as possible early, the earliest possible, and to cure them early, according to the knowledge we have today, is the best service we can offer to our patients. And it's very promising using the techniques that you've come up with and described and worked with others to develop that now we can diagnose many more and hopefully follow and get some kind of biological behavior so that we know which one. So it's wonderful, everything that you've done. And I know you've been very involved in teaching. I wanted to ask about that aspect. You've been active with the International Dermoscopy Society, which, by the way, for the listeners, is dermoscopy-ids.org, and they have many wonderful tools there, resources for learning all things dermoscopy. What are some of your other favorite dermoscopy resources you would recommend to learners of dermoscopy enthusiasts, anyone who wanted to get more information? I know it's hard to pick just a few, but if you could suggest a few. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, as you said, thank you for this. The, the, the website of the IDS, I think, is by itself a great source of educational tools. We have, for example, more than 300 podcasts online for free, which are also nice and short, so not more than five, seven minutes each, each one of them, meaning that it's not a boring procedure. It's fast and quite efficient way to learn the basic things and also to learn more advanced things because... 300 podcasts means that they cover practically all the spectrum of basic and advanced knowledge. Then I would also like to highlight Dermoscopedia. Dermoscopedia, I don't know how many of the people that watch this video are familiar with it, but this is, please try it. You're going to love it because it's a free source which works more or less like Wikipedia. It's a wiki with searchable way to read. So if you read the sentence and you don't know what the word precisely means, you click on the word, you go... Uh, you go there and you come back to your text. It's not the solid text. It's somehow interactive and therefore easy to follow, even if you're a beginner, even if you begin today. And the last one that I would like to propose, because it's not only helpful, but also very fun, is the Udermoscopy application. You can uh, download it on any kind of, of smartphone. It's a game. Practically, it's a game. You just play you compete with other players, you know, you pass the one level after the other, like in any game. But at the same moment that you have fun, you also learn a lot of things. So it's a nice tool that you can use even when you relax and helpful one. Nice. I'm looking forward to, to using those, to incorporating the inverse approach into my clinic every day. Any closing thoughts you would like to leave with the listeners? We've talked about a lot. We talked about some of the key features of the pigmented macular lesions on the face. We've talked about the inverse approach. We've touched on how this might fit into maybe a larger existential question of the increased diagnosis of melanoma. Any other thoughts or points you'd like to highlight with the listeners before we say goodbye? Well, maybe the only thing with the inverse approach is that it was, for me at least, one more example in life and in science which, uh, through which I learned that we should always be ready to question ourselves, to put in doubt what we until today thought as given knowledge, because there is a good chance that we were wrong. Uh, and we have to be ready to accept it. We have to be ready that what we did until today was not in the correct direction. This is what happened with us. We published so many studies, 
in the wrong direction until the moment that suddenly we understood that probably this is not the right way and we have to change. You can never change if you cannot accept your mistakes. We have to be able to accept our mistakes. It helps us a lot. Thank you again so much, Dr. Lalas, who, by the way, you can follow on Twitter at, at A-I-M-L-A-L-L-A-S. Thank you so much, Dr. Lalas, for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot, and I'm really looking forward to using all the resources. Thank you, Remy. The pleasure was mine. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.